Thank you for listening to Therapy for Guys. My name is Kike Autry, and I'm a licensed professional counselor in Katy, Texas. In this podcast, I want to explore the issues that men stay silent about, our struggles with anxiety and depression, our relationship issues, obstacles that we face with a diagnosis like ADHD or autism or OCD, and our big existential crises, those related to spirituality and religion, to larger cultural realities, and to the question of the meaning of life. If you enjoy this podcast and you would like to learn more about me, I would encourage you to check out my website. You can find it at kikeautry.com. That's Q-U-I-Q-U-E-A-U-T-R-E-Y.com. I would love to hear from you. I would love to connect. And as always, remember, continue the conversation. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Jonathan Tran. Originally from Southern California, Jonathan joined Baylor University's Religion Department in 2006 after completing his graduate studies in theology and ethics at Duke University. He now teaches undergraduate and graduate courses, and his research examines the theological and political implications of human life and language. Jonathan is the author of several books, which we discuss in this episode. His latest book is entitled Asian Americans and the Spirit of Racial Capitalism. This episode covers a lot of ground. We start by exploring how the traumatic death of his brother shaped the trajectory of his life story. From there, we explore his encounter with religion, the influence of Stanley Hauerwas on his thinking during his time at Duke, the contemporary relevance of Michel Foucault's philosophy, the difficulty with gender and sex, and how the overturning of Roe v. Wade highlights the problematic state of our collective existence. If you'd like to connect with Jonathan, please visit his website at jonathantran.blog. Guys, I hope you really enjoy this episode. I know that it caused me to pause and to really think about my own identity, my own work as a therapist. I'm going to be taking some of these ideas and wrestling with them for some time, and even implementing Uh, some of the things we talked about in my work with men. Really hope you enjoy it. I hope you share it if you do. 
And as always, remember, continue the conversation. So Jonathan, thank you so much for being a part of Therapy for Guys. I appreciate you making the time today to talk to me. Well, it's great to be on both because I know you personally and what you've kind of done in your life and the work you've been about, but also the great mission and work of this podcast. So Mm. thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you. Now, I know one of the things that has always stood out for me about you is your your claim that, you know, theology or, or thinking about the the deepest aspects of reality is always autobiographical. So I kind of wanted first to give you this chance to maybe just talk a little bit about what you're up to now in terms of your career and your scholarship. But then I want to start our conversation going back to one of your earliest memories that, that I know is kind of traumatic, but I think could be a good sort of segue into, into a a really rich and meaningful conversation. Yeah, that'd be great. I mean, uh, I do think kind of we work out of our stories, our histories. And so uh, revisiting our past, even our traumatic past, uh, is incredibly important work. And, and, you know, as you're saying, in some sense, we're always either implicitly and at sometimes explicitly giving voice to those things to go there. Yeah, yeah. So, so you're a professor of philosophical theology at Baylor University? Yeah, in Central Texas. I've been here. I can't remember. I guess once you get past a certain number of years, you just, you know, everything fades into its. Uh, but I've been here, I think, 15, 16 years. Uh, it's, it's in Central Texas. If listeners don't know, we actually have an acronym for where we are in Texas. Heart of Texas, which is the world's best acronym. Yes. yes. Oh, my gosh. Dude, and I saw the other day that one of your chickens died of like heat exhaustion. That was fucking terrible, man. Yeah, I think uh, I saw a story that in Kansas alone, tens of thousands of chickens died and, you know, thousands of cows died. He is, I mean, we're just coming to terms with the reality. I mean, in, in the privileged places that we live, we're just coming to terms with the reality. Uh, of global climate change. And, you know, of course, the most vulnerable always experience it before people like me who are very privileged. Mm, mm. No, well said. Okay, so so can we start here? You you come to the United States early on, California, and as as you've said on, on podcasts, you know, in, and I believe in one of your books, that one of your earliest memories is a brother of yours being hit by a car and then passing away. 
Yeah, we had been. So my family came to America in 1975. I was about two years old at the time. And, you know, we came as war refugees, which very much colored our experience in America. That is, we didn't come as willing immigrants. We came on, you know, because the war had ended and people thought if you stayed, your life would be endangered, this kind of thing. So we came to America. Uh, we were interestingly adopted as were thousands of Vietnamese migrants. Uh, we were adopted by um, American churches. That is, they kind of took the lead in um, patriating Vietnamese people to America. So we were adopted by a, a Lutheran church in Southern California. Um, and it was in that context that my brother and I were crossing the street. It was the occasion of my older brother's birthday, our older brother's birthday. Mm. And we were, you know, and, and this is not only an early memory, it's really my first memory. Um, and I, I think I had maybe memories of things that happened before, but the trauma was so life-defining uh, that it, it really marks the beginning of anything I remember in full. So anyways, the day of my brother, who was six and I was five, we were crossing the street um, kind of playing. I think we were getting flowers for the party for my mom, this kind of thing. Mm. And David was just a couple feet ahead of me. We we're kind of running back and forth across a residential street. And uh, some lady hit and killed David. Mm. And, you know, and then there's some pretty vivid memories or like scenes of memories. I, I, I guess our memories often work in terms of kind of just vivid pictures. Right. These images. Uh, yeah. These images that the mind kind of um, captures and then holds, uh, you know, so um, ambulances and fire trucks and police people running around. And I distinctly remember running around the house, um, you know, playing um, mm. because I was so excited about the fire trucks uh, and the sirens and the lights. I had, of course, no idea what was happening. Um, and I guess in some sense, I would come to figure out um, some version of what had happened over the next decades of my life. Sure, sure. So Jonathan, let me ask you this way. Um, in my understanding, just from clinical experience, different readings, just my own early childhood, I know that a trauma can be both a tragedy, you know, that that you can't even put words to that can really kind of fuck things up for a lot of people. But it can also be something that pushes us toward the transcendent, however we define that, that kind of opens these vistas to who we end up becoming, what we end up doing in the world. And I'm wondering if you could speak to both of those sides. In, in what ways was it this tragedy that maybe had a negative impact? And again, not to just put a positive spin on it because it, it's it's really a tragedy. How did it sort of shape the trajectory of, of who you are now? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. Of course, I can, you know, at best speculate about my own story and uh, the particular factors that determined its course. In the years after David uh, died, I mean, these were rough years for our family, and the the migrant story is is always in the background here. Okay, you know, we we were raised uh, with pretty significant poverty. Um, 
there was a lot of security financially, which meant in our family's case, we moved around a tremendous amount. We moved, I believe, 14 times before I got to high school. Um, Dude, that's a so lot. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's on average probably once uh, every half a year. And of course, it always happened that the half a year point was somewhere in the middle of the academic school. Year. Oh, man. Um, which, you know, for any any kids that have experienced or experience moving schools in the middle of a school year. Those are tiny deaths themselves, mm, right? And well so, said. Because in each case, yeah, in each case, you're you're leaving people you finally kind of found some home with, and then you're trying to live as a stranger in the often cruel world of children in schools. Mm. Uh, and you know, back then, it's there was much less attention to. Uh, community and social and mental health well-being. Sure. The bullying was just a kind of rampant reality, and it was certainly racialized. There was just tons of racism, I mean, constantly. Man, can you speak you go to, to that? If, yeah, I mean, if you go to Southern California today, today Southern California is not only uh, one of the most diverse places on Earth, it's also one of the most diverse places on Earth in relationship to Asians. For example, there are more Vietnamese in Southern California than anywhere else other than Vietnam. And you could say that for any number of Asian countries just in Southern California. So you go to Southern California today, you know, and it's often the case that you'll have like 60, 70 percent of your um, class in an elementary school as other Asian Americans. Wow. When I was growing up, that certainly wasn't the case. Remember, this is 1975 when we came to America, just a couple of years after the Vietnam War. Uh, just less than a decade after Hart Seller, which was the act that ex- grossly expanded immigration allowances from Asia, and then the tail end of three subsequent wars that America waged with Asian countries, it was a tough time to be an Asian American in the U.S. And it's it's not like there was ever a time before that. Um, and so, you know, and, and then it gets worked out within a very kind of interesting uh, and at time dramatic um, cultural context in schools with kids. Um, and at this point in, in life and in an educational life, there's very little handles on how kids treat each other in, you know, schoolyards. Sure. So it was just like a kind of constant racism, con- in my case, constant fighting, like fist fights. Mm. I got in, in dozens and dozens of fights. Um, and that and and those were the times when I had the ability to stand up for myself. Most of the time, you just you know, what can you do? You're the new kid, so it was real tough. And the one thing going back to David that I often think is that David would have been just one year ahead of me, mm. which would have meant that he would have made those transitions with me. We would have gone to new schools together. And practically, you know, for any kids that are kids in elementary schools, practically that means you have someone to hang out with at recess and at lunch. Uh, Because if you want to see, you know, if you want to see a picture of how painful elementary school or middle school can be, is think about the minority kid walking around recess or lunch all by himself or Mm. herself. Um, And, you know, that was just really tough. And, Again, the context of how we imagine education is different. Um, there might have been greater intentionality in a school nowadays, you know, we hope, um, 
than there was then. That there, there, then it was very much you know kids will be kids mentality, and so whatever happened, including the kind of various brutalities of uh, childhood, was just you know par for the course. So, but I would have had David, and and I came to that realization in my late twenties mm. that so much of my childhood was driven by a constant loneliness that was created by a being aloneness. Mm-hmm. Now I, I don't think being alone is a bad I think bad thing. I, I I'm say half extrovert, half introvert, and being alone is a lot of what I do and I relish being able to be alone oftentimes. But that's different than the kind of loneliness that can come out of it, especially if you spend a lot of time, say, in forced uh, occasions. Right. Um, And so to get to the big picture of your question, you know, what this did for me is it created a world and even a community in my own head. Um, Mm. I had to imagine a different life uh, while negotiating the terms of the one I was given. And I think that what that did is created me basic um, capacities to think about the world and life um, and to imagine possibilities beyond the circumstances what you know life had dealt you. Um, all the while practically navigating, you know, this bully or that bully or this new move or this instance of poverty or that one. Sure. And so, you know, it mixed kind of practical life with, you know, life in your head, uh, which, you know, in terms of that's usually what professors are up to. <laughs> you know, right. that's what I think artists are up to um, is they are people who have to think about life beyond life. Uh, oh, and well that said. that itself comes with great you know, great blessings, mm. uh, but it also comes with its own challenges because you're constantly negotiating uh, is and what could be. Sure, so. sure. No, that's really good. Okay, so if we sort of take a step into maybe adolescence, early adulthood, I know at some point you kind of have a meaningful encounter with religion. Can you can you tell us about that and? Maybe why you were drawn to it and, and sort of what you did with that? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I'm a religious scholar um, in a world that, uh, especially in relationship to Christianity and, say, Protestant evangelical Christianity, in a world that has increasing, and I think for very good reasons, increasing anxieties about I mean, at, at this point, you know, in, in the particular current um Conditions. There's great worry about white Christian nationalism, which mm. is, I think, has always been the case in this country. But I think in the kind of developments over the last decades, uh, we're reaching um, alarming levels and intensities of the white Christianism. I mean, a lot of our politics is driven in our history either by the creation and maintenance of white Christian nationalism and in this day the attempt to hold it uh, in place while the world around it is crumbling and and I think what we're seeing is the death knell of that. Mm. I think what I probably didn't anticipate maybe 10 years ago was just how well and powerfully and violently um, Christian right um, 
would be able to do what they would be able to do to maintain power. Um, and there are versions of this story that we can see happening that they'll take the they'll burn the entire house down. Um, mm. And you know, you see this most basically in our politics. To say the most basic mechanism of a democracy, though not you know, it's a necessary but not sufficient condition of genuine democracy, is elections. Right. Um, of elections, um, just like say the questioning of the judiciary, uh, marks the beginning of a democracy. I mean, the, the beginning of the end of a democracy. Mm. Um, and what can we do to right the ship? At this point is a huge question, and one I don't think we are sufficiently attentive to. Mm. Um, I think we we progressive liberals think that somehow something's going to click into place, uh, <laughs> but that's 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 maybe me ten years ago just thinking. You know, like progressive liberals often do, that right always corrects wrong. Mm. Um, that they actually snap back into a kind of progressive liberal sensibility, which is one of the curses of being progressive liberals is sure. a kind of false optimism about our own lives. Anyways, so I'm a religious scholar in that context, which means a lot of you know poo-pooing <laughs> on religion. <laughs> um, but the. the about my story is I am a Christian, but I was not raised Christian. Mm. And what made me attract, what attracted me to Christianity, say late teens, early twenties, is still what does. And so there's a lot of Christians and Christian thinkers who are, in a sense, thinking their way out of religion, mm. out of Christianity, and the little, you know, the little thing I just said about the politics of white Christian nationalism are lots of really good reasons to do that. Whereas for me, having kind of entered Christianity late, especially after that childhood, in a way that Christianity answered so many of the challenges of that childhood, for me, Christianity feels off. Even now, decades later after becoming a Christian, you know, like the best thing since sliced bread. Mm. Um, and so while a lot of academics are kind of saying these are the reasons we are abandoned, um, I still am in the op- opposite posture of trying to say uh, there are some pretty good reasons why we want to hold on to this or at least rethink this, this being Christianity, in a way that makes it more livable. Yeah, um, no, well said. And, and, you know, and go, this is why your question, your big question about my childhood uh, and the relationship between tragedy and hope. That's why that great question means so much to me, because mm. I think what I'm trying to do in my theology is, in a sense, defend largely in my own head why becoming a Christian um, gave me a sense of better life than whatever came before it. Wow. Well said, man. So, you know, which which is it to say that's going to be the story? everyone or even most people sure um, sure i think you know i think the i think some people have had such traumatized so let's say i had traumatizing experiences outside of the church that drew me to the church you can imagine the converse story someone having such experiences in the church that the church becomes the primary witness why you should never step foot in a church again you right. know i mean it's 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 the nature of Communities and specifically uh, religious ones, that the best reason to become a Christian 
uh, is other Christians, and the best reason not to become a Christian is uh, the Christians. Other Christians, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, it's a good yeah. point. It's that's an interesting so, uh, paradox. So you end up receiving your PhD at Duke University, and you know that's that's a pretty you know uh, elite, high level institution. I'm, I'm curious what your time there was like and if there were any ideas that you began to wrestle with and think about that shape you even now. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, to be clear, I went to Duke because of the basketball. (laughs) 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 I I knew little about its elite academic status uh, and less about its theological uh, moorings. (laughs) So I became a Christian, as I said, somewhere, you know, it's, you know, evangelicals like and not Christianity's clear points between A and B. You weren't a Christian and then you were. Right. Um, just like ex-evangelicals might like to do the same in reverse. I think it's, of course, much more ambiguous, mm. um, you know, in, in the deepest recesses of, of mystical theology. You know, when we connect up with God uh, is as difficult as trying to na- navigate when we began with God. Right, <laughs> right. right. So, uh, so the beginning, the ending in the eternal is hard to negotiate a pinpoint exact moment. But anyway, so sometimes, say, in my early 20s, uh, I became seriously Christian. And this meant, you know, I was, I, I like to say I was lucky. You could say, I, I could so on saying I was unlucky. But I think I was, I think I was lucky in becoming Christian in a context of a Christian community that wasn't going to bullshit around. Mm. It, it was either you're going to be a Christian and be serious about it, or you know, get out of town. Right. And right. what this meant was profound commitments to social justice, to living accountably in terms of the environment, in terms of money, in terms of race and gender, and these questions. There was in our minds no distinction between the good news of the gospel and living as faithful human beings in a world often at war with itself over mm. issues of gender and race and environment, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. So uh, there was just, it was serious about being serious. Um, now, the great thing about that is you're going to jump fully in, and I did. Uh, the difficult thing about that is that's pretty hard. That's a pretty hard model to sustain, mm. you know, to live in a world where, you know, to be Christian is acts in these very narrow terms. Sure. Um, it, it's, it's pretty straining on, on the soul, ironically. Um, and so I did this with the campus ministry for four years as an undergrad and then five years as a minister of that community, um, and in these super intense contexts. And then at the end of the, I was just exhausted. Oh, I and so, and then I had no idea what I wanted to do with my future. So, you know, I did what most Christians do when they have no idea what to do with their future. I went to seminary <laughs> uh, and, you know, I, I chose Duke because of the basketball. I loved college basketball. Mm. Duke was like the Mecca of college basketball, you know? Uh, and so I went, and then when I got to Duke, what I realized was there's a number of folks there that had been articulating really well the positives and the negatives of my life as a Christian for the last, say, decade. And so then it became an opportunity for tremendous self-reflection about what my life meant Mm. uh, and what the world meant. And so that's what I did, and specifically under – the the mentorship of Stanley Hauerwas, you know, who's who's maybe the most influential theologian in the second half of the 20th century, 
uh, you know, he had directed more dissertations than anyone in the history of Duke University. So he's a huge, huge, huge presence on the campus. Wow. And, you know, Howard Wass uh, became a, a great mentor and eventually a friend uh, and still is one of my closest friends. So, um, you know, so it was an elite, definitely an elite academic culture, but more so it was space to think, um, mm. you know, in some ways to reflect it directly and indirectly on the childhood that you asked about earlier. Sure, sure. For, for those who, who may not know who Stanley Howross is, I mean, in terms of an idea or, or a, a concept that you, you glean from him that, that you still sort of work with today, how, how, would you, how would you think about that? How would you address that? Yeah, you know, Howard Wass is, you know, was such a, a, a seminal figure in Christian theology in the second half of the 20th century. But he's people don't often know of him anymore, partly because theology is such a strange thing to most people. Yeah. Uh, but also, you know, and I'll say more about this later on, theology has taken a different kind of turn. But in his day, I think what Howard Wass was doing was pressing Christians in America to remember that they need to make a distinction because they're often confused about what it means to be Christian and what it means to be American. Mm. That Christianity, that the good of Christianity can't simply be being American. And so whatever America amounts to, say, uh, going to war with other countries um, in the name of freedom or uh, certain systems like the carceral system of mass imprisonment of mostly people of color um, or the massive forms of consumerism Right. Uh, of American capitalism. That's not what it means to be Christian. Now, mm. you may be a Christian in America, but those are not synonymous things. In fact, they're often opposed realities. Mm. And Howard Wass made a career of reminding people of that. Now, mm. you can imagine that made him grossly unpopular with the vast majority of Christians who did think Christianity and Americanism were the same thing. Oh, you yeah. Know, those who, you know, those who would say something like, well, America, you know, was created by God uh, and it's ordained and its activities are created by God. So therefore, to be a good Christian is to be a good patriot. Mm. Um, and Hauerwas just called that idolatry. He used, mm. you know, very specific Christian terms to call that stuff out. Uh, but he also became a hero for those who say on the underbelly of American life um, – wanted to imagine Christianity as a different picture of things. Mm. Uh, one that could name and identify the good things about American life, but also wasn't going to make America the be-all, end-all of what it meant to be a good human being. So mm. uh, so Hauerwas gave powerful, powerful voice to that, uh, and then set a generation of thinkers uh, who agreed or disagreed with that line of thought. Yeah. Okay, your first book, is about the Vietnam War and theologies of memory. I'm, I'm curious, even for those who who never read theology, who who aren't even Christian or, or you know, but 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 they're interested in kind of bigger ideas. Is there something from that book that kind of still plays a role in your own life, in your own thinking, that maybe is especially relevant for us today? Yeah, I mean, I think relevant for us today, and, and relevant for your listeners and your work in particular, right? So. The basic premise of the book is a question about what we do. You know, and again, this goes to your question about how I narrate my own life. Sure. The basic question is, what do you do with tough memories? What mm. do you do with trauma? What do we do with the past? 
Um, I remember at the time when, when I was writing this book, there was a wonderful, wonderful film um, by P.T. Anderson called um, Magnolia. And one of the running lines to the movie is that you may be done with the past, but the past isn't done with you. Mm. That is, we think we we often think, well, my my childhood or something that happened in my past, a divorce, a bad set of relationships at work um, that were deeply wounding. We think, well, we get over it, and right. that's the kind of American way. We get over the past, and then you know we're done with the past. Well, the movie's premise is you may be done with the past. You may be done with the past, but the past is going to continue to haunt you. Yes. Uh, and so better to to engage it and to think through it uh, and to live through it um, because you're, that's an inescapable reality of humans. Mm. And so then the question is, you know, what do you do with the past? And then I, I basically took that question that I think that every human is negotiating uh, and then I cast it onto American culture and asked, what does America do with memories uh, in its past that are bad memories? And in this case, what does it do with the American war in Vietnam? And and some broader history is important here because America is not unique um, in that it tells this, its story through its past, but it is unique in that it tells its sto- the story of its past through its history of victorious wars. Right. Right. Like like our history is you know often literally narrated through three or four points, all of which are wars: the Revolutionary War, the Civil War. The, the great world wars. Yeah, that's a great and point. In, in each case, we won, or you know, we tell ourselves we won, and that seems to suggest that, in so far as we've been victorious in the past, we must be on to something, mm. and that also allows the future to be narrated in terms of victory. So um, we think, well, what are we doing in Iraq? You know, referring to a war in the 1990s and the t- 2000s. Well, we're not there to uh, terrorize a people, right? What are we doing in Afghanistan? We're not there to uh, bomb to hell a place that's already been bombed to hell. We're there right. for freedom, right. right? We're there for freedom. And how do we know we're there for freedom? Well, that's what we were doing in World War One and World War II, mm. right? And so this narration of a threat that threads history through our being on the right side of history is then becomes an empower an incredibly uh, rhetorical device for leveraging the future in a particular way. Wow, that's all mucked up by the Vietnam War because we lose the Vietnam War, and the way we lose it looks like a series of atrocities, mm. right? And so then it then it casts significant doubt on our self image. Uh, the way we tell our story. So the question was, what do we do with the Vietnam War in our collective memory as a country? Um, But I don't think that's different in structure than what do individuals do with stories of their past, both traumas that have happened to them, but also, right, uh, traumas that we may be complicit in. Mm. Um, How do we go on? Um, And how do we, rather than trying to forget or sweep under the rug, how do we come to terms with things? And this is, a, of, of course, a place where I think Christianity has been badly complicit in forms of forgetting. But at the same time, through its history, it's offered extraordinary moral resources mm. for acknowledging uh, complicity, for acknowledging trauma. So practices like confession, forgiveness, and these aren't simply the kinds of interpersonal ones, though those are incredibly important, but these are often liturgical rites systems and infrastructures built into common worship uh, that mark 
the past in a way that creates monuments and acknowledges things while also trying to open up a future in a faithful way. And so that's what the first book was about. Yeah, man, I love that. Well said. Okay, in your second book, I believe you you write about Michel Foucault in theology. That's right. Okay, yes. So uh, that was a great book too. I'm I'm wondering if in light of our current religious social political climate if if Foucault would have anything kind of fresh to tell us. And and maybe not just kind of a a, a generic Foucault but 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 the one that you sort of fill out through your own theological lens. Is there anything he would tell us today that might be helpful? Yeah, this is a great question. My friend at Rice, uh, Nikki Clemens, is doing really important work on Foucault, maybe the most important work in the philosophy and religious uh, aspects of Foucault's work. Mm. Uh, and so she's going to you know, dig out quite literally because she's in the archives in, in Paris, <laughs> um, kind of how to think about these questions. So Foucault at this point, I mean, say 20 years ago, Foucault, I think I, I remember some, this may be apocryphal more than anything, was the most cited social theorists in the world. Mm. Everyone referred to Foucault. Um, But they referred to Foucault in a certain kind of way. And I think at this point, that reference to Foucault, it now inundates our culture. Um, But what's interesting is that that was only half of Foucault. So let me, let me say more what I mean here. So Foucault is what often, what is often referred to as one of the masters, if not the master of suspicion. So if the history of Europe is the high point of the history of Europe, the high watermark, say, is the European Enlightenment. The idea that, you know, namely white European dudes had discovered what it truly means to be human and truly have a future. And lo and behold, it's them. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, In terms of our economics, our politics, you know, the way in which we imagine relationships between persons they 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 came to the dual discovery of the greatest version of that and that they were it mm. um i mean you know nowadays we can't imagine the arrogance but it never occurred to them as arrogant it right. just thought they just thought they were you know um you know um the shit <laughs> the shit so you know all capitals uh you know both words um and so there then began a series of, you know, and this was always internal to the tradition. Right. So these, these people weren't so much outliers, but internal folks who began to question this arrogance. And they were known as the masters of suspicion. And they were Freud um, in terms of how we are imagining the inner life of humans. Uh, they were Nietzsche in terms of how we are imagining thinking. Uh, they're Kierkegaard about how societies were organized, especially religiously, and they were Marx about how our political economic realities and the relationship to the world. Mm. And so these were these were critical critical interventions. Well, what Foucault did in the 20th century is he embodied all of these, mm. and he showed that ultimately what we have is not a system committed to say the good, the truth, the beautiful. Really, what we had were forms of power. And the forms of power were ways of asserting power over and against each other, all under the ideological justification of having discovered the good, the true, and the beautiful. Mm. In other words, it was all simply power arrangements um, in a war of all against all. Uh, and we deployed concepts, uh, often religious concepts, 
as kind of hammers by which we can hammer each other over the head. Wow. Uh, and Foucault gave us this vast repertoire of concepts to help us think about these concepts like biopower, right? Um, uh, that have now become basically kind of how we think about the world. In, in some sense, if there's an ethos running through, say, social media sure. and the deep suspicion that social media is, say, a mode of community by which we lead out with our suspicions, that's Foucault, mm. right? And so while Foucault was the most referenced person in academia two decades ago, he's hardly referenced now, but I think that just ex- that shows actually how pervasive that thinking is. So, so that says we live in a Foucaultian world now. The interesting thing, though, is that Foucault only really spent the first half of his career doing that. The other half of Foucault's life was thinking about, well, what then does it mean to be a person, an individual, a self mm. in a world of power? And that's where Foucault actually got very interesting because in some sense, the masters of suspicion had already given us all the reasons we need to question the Enlightenment's arrogance, to see power for what it was. What the harder question is, is how do you constitute selves and communities in the context of that? Right. So uh, an interesting question with social media would be something like, well, social media does all kinds of damage, but it actually can also cultivate selfhood and community life in really rather interesting and surprising ways. That's what Foucault would be interesting mm. interested in. So for me, Foucault be- became a way of imagining say, religious life, not as an enactment by which we hammered each other over the head in the name of God, but how does God scuttle um, our arrangements of power? And then what possibilities remain after that? That's that's what really becomes interesting for Foucault. Wow. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And even imagining kind of alternative communities. I know this is a little strange, but I end up working with a lot of young men who are on the autism spectrum have a very difficult time socializing in person. And, and one of the interesting ways that I see them sort of piece together a community where there are other guys like them that are kind of strange and have these, you know, weird kind of habits is through these online forums where they can play D&D and, and just kind of communicate and connect in very unconventional ways. But, but I feel like it's a way of sort of pushing against you know, the normal way of getting together and hanging out as a guy. And uh, it, it really serves them and, and benefits them. Yeah, I mean, that's a great example. I mean, uh, so I ran into D&D culture when I was a faculty leader of the Honors Residential College at Baylor. Okay. And so a lot of the, a lot of the kids that end up, uh, you remember, you may remember this, a lot of the kids that end up in, in something like an Honors College are kids who gravitate towards subcultures like yes. D&D cultures. Yes. And so while... While everyone else is going off to parties or football games, and I think we all know how those types of realities can cultivate pretty bad behavior. Oh, yeah. Um, these kids thought the best thing they could do on a Friday night was get together and play a bunch of board games. Um <laughs> And so I began to think of these kids as enacting a counterculture. Mm. Uh, remember in universities, uh, say partying and alcohol and Greek culture is often synonymous or actually, you know, at, at minimum closely associated with things like rape culture yeah, um, and other forms of um, social and other types of egregious violence. Sure. Um, and these kids were thinking, well, how do we do something else? 
uh, we still want to have, you know, the fun associated with those types of communal life, but we don't want the violence. And mm. so, um, so I began to talk with friends across the country that, you know, were parts of residential communities on college campuses. And that was some of the best things that we did is create alternative stories about how to be a college student, um, similar to, you know, the, the folks that you're talking about. And Foucault was all up in this, you know, again, Foucault's, Foucault's interesting. Foucault was a homosexual at a time when it was clearly not okay to be homosexual right. uh, socially. And uh, he was also gay at a time uh, at, when AIDS was becoming was coming on the scene. Foucault took his, uh, you know, master of suspicion sensibility, and he actually doubted the reality of AIDS. He thought it was something the government had concocted mm. to block the liberation of gay folks. And he made some gross miscalculations about that. Wow. But he wasn't wrong to think that governments do that kind of thing. Right, right. Um, but what was more interesting about Foucault was the way he imagined alternative forms of life within gay communities in Paris and in Berkeley, California. Mm. Um, and this is what I'm one of the things I'm most interested in is what are the ways of cultivating alternative modes of selfhood? You know, he... Uh, at the end of Foucault's life, he spends a lot of time thinking about the Romans, the Greeks, the early Christians, uh, partly to see how things go wrong in those communities, but also how they eke out different forms of life mm. uh, under the terms of empire. Sure. Um, and that is a hugely important analogy for us today. Mm. You know, it's interesting. Um, there's different strands of sort of psychotherapeutic theories that draw from Foucault. And I, I don't necessarily practice them. I benefit from aspects of them. But I guess they're real big on this kind of first half of Foucault that you've been talking about, kind of the master of suspicion sensibility. I don't see, or at least I don't, I'm, I'm not aware of contemporary kind of therapeutic theories that are wrestling with the latter half of his life, sort of these um, ancient, self-care practices that he reflected on. And so as, as you talked about that, that just gets me thinking, I need to do more research on that and see if there's any interesting connections between those worlds. Yeah. I mean, I think that set of questions in the, in the clinical and therapeutic context has a important analogy within say to most of modern life. So let's say we agree with Foucault that. um, Lots and lots of our lives are about power mm. and people people lording over each other. And not only that, but using justifications to do so. That right. is, we know we don't only we not only lord over each other, but we gaslight each other in the process. We blame the, the person we're oppressing for their oppression, which mm. is largely what I think racism is. Um so let's say we agree with Foucault about that, and I think we largely do in our society. In our society, um, then the next question, once we get clear of that, and it takes a while to get clear of that, but once we get clear of that, then the question is, what next? Mm. Is our lives as individuals and communities simply about being suspicious about one of one another? Right. Uh, is our own sense of self simply a questioning of our own motives constantly all the way down? Because if you're if you're an honest person, you, there's no end to that. Um, if you're a serious moral human being, there's no end to one's complicity within systems and structures of oppression Absolutely. and exploitation. The question is then how do you go on? That's 
to me, the more difficult question at this moment. So let's say we think about something like moral life. And, and I imagine this runs right up against the world of clinical therapy. Sure. And there's actually been a fair amount of thinking both in the clinical context about this, but also in the philosophical context. So if we say something like morality, most of morality is people, you know, disguising forms of oppression against each other in the name of the good or morality as such. Um, do, then we need to ask, is that all morality is? Right. Is there also something right about, you know, in the fancy terms of philosophy, normative claims, claims about what people ought to be doing that still remain, even while we recognize the suspicions that could, should come when everyone, anyone makes that kind of claim. Yes. And, and that's the great difficulty. My thought is that, and, and this is just following a number of philosophers, that therapy is really at the heart of a lot of these questions because the therapist is saying to the person, affirming the legitimacy of where someone is at, while also calling that person to their best good in ways that that person may not themselves recognize. Right. How do you do that without imposing upon them on the one hand? And how do you do that without losing sight of a greater good altogether? That seems that nexus of tensions, say oppressing people on the one hand, um, while also having some common agreements about what a good life means is a really hard thing to do. I mean, as a teacher, I think about this constantly. I sure. think about this in our politics, and I'm sure therapists think about this question all the time. I, I wrestle with that every day, honestly. Yeah, and so you like, how do you say to someone the behavior you're involved in is not good for you mm. when that person has been taught rightly to see that that's often oppressive, right? And right. so um, when that very language has been used in often horribly abusive ways against that person. You know, you can imagine the logic of abuse saying, not only am I abusing you, but this is abuse. This abuse is good for you. And I get to determine that, right? It's not right. different than the enlightenment fathers who said, you know, we discovered the good and lo and behold, it's us. Sure. Um, and then went and colonized the rest of the world in the name of that good. Um, and I imagine within systems uh, as deeply intimate as the family, but as well as structure, larger structures of systems in our society, that is constantly going on. So how do selves, how do persons live in that world in ways that can protect them and their others in relationship to it, while also minding uh, that there are greater goods that actually do make our lives better? Yeah. Uh, and this is this is a constant. Um, I, again, this seems to me to be the question. question. Uh, of our lives. Yeah. Wow, man. Dude, that's like a really good segue into kind of a big picture question I wanted to wrestle with um, on this episode with you, which is, you know, as someone who teaches philosophical theology, I felt like, you know, when, when you taught us that great social ethics class, one of the things I really got out of it was just the importance of metaphysics, to use kind of an old fancy term, like, what is the role of grounding our lives in something transcendent and something outside of, you know, potentially time and space. How, how does that help us think about our everyday life? How, you know, what, how, how does that help a therapist wrestle with some of the, the live issues that they're dealing with? Yeah. So another great question. So, so let's say we take the fancy title metaphysics and try to demystify it. Okay. And we use a, um, 
I think, a pretty helpful description by a philosopher named Wilfred Wilfred Sellers, Mm. who described metaphysics as a story we each have about how things in the broadest sense hang together in the broadest sense. Mm. Right. So how do we imagine our individual lives, which are populated by innumerable specific actions and moments? How do we imagine those as parts of a whole? That uh, there's a there's both a natural human tendency to do that, and a natural human tendency, interestingly, to question it. So all of us, in a sense, are always constantly imagining ourselves as holes, parts mm. of holes. Right, my life in this moment versus my whole life as a larger story. My life as an individual relationship to a broader community, whether it be my immediate family or my community at work or school or what have you. Um, and so we're always doing this, but we're also, it's as natural to do that. It's natural to question it. Right. Right. So how does this particular moment have meaning to the rest of my life? Sometimes it feels like it doesn't like, you're like, what, what just happened? Yeah, you know, and exactly. then something on, you know, you're, you're going to work one day, you get in a car accident and then all of a sudden you find yourself in a story you no longer recognize. Mm. Right. And so, and if we're honest, that occurs regularly yes um and 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 we have these amazing personal resources for blocking ourselves from seeing that very thing so you know continuity in the midst of discontinuity etc cetera, etc cetera. so the with these larger stories or say a metaphysics is is a larger narrative some mm. have described this as a meta narrative that allows us to have a sense of identity right an identity uh, at least I, as i would define it of course there's many ways to identi- identify what an identity is sure but at least one definition of identity is placing oneself in a story through which one understands who one is where one that. is in the story where one has been where one might be going sure it also gives us powerful tools of assessment if we're headed towards x then we can assess any moment of our life in relationship Mm. Um, to X. And just like the past, we can understand the past as leading to the present moment, et cetera, et cetera. And so identity and narrative, these things go together. Um, and I, you know, if you want to have deeper reasons for this, there are ways in which this shows up because we're creatures who use language uh, and language uh, aspires towards a, a certain wholeness, mm. a conceptual wholeness, right? This is all kind of complex cognitive stuff. Um but the idea is we tell stories to implant ourselves or identify ourselves in the world. Um, and so what a metaphys- metaphysics would be would be a story that holds together a whole bunch of stories. Mm. Um, and so you can get increasingly into a philosophical or religious metaphysics, which is not simply the story of one's own life, but a story of all lives, human lives, non-human creaturely lives. Et cetera, et cetera. Sure. And so what you can think about religion is, is a really, really, really big story. Uh, I think religious people would like to think of their story as the largest stories. Now, right. philosophers are going to say they have stories that are even larger than those stories. <laughs> or right? science. So, that's science, right? Science certainly have a story that they think explains and maybe ends a lot of other stories. <laughs> so just like religion does. So right. Christians have to think that the, the story of God is Trinity is the largest story ever. But again, other people are going to have other stories. So sure. um, so that's what a metaphysics is. And I think it's that's in great. some ways a way of navigating the utter complexity 
and largely unknownness of the world. Mm. It's a way of telling yourselves, this is where we belong. And you can imagine it as one of the most basic instincts and impulses of human creatures since the beginning. Um, people who were trying to navigate the great unknownness by narrating or conscripting a story that makes the unknown at least a little bit better known. Mm. Um, right. And so that's what a metaphysics is. The way I think about metaphysics, going to your question, is, you know, for me, why do I have something like that? And what is Christianity doing? Right. Well, it's a way of implauding, right? It's a way of telling a story. How does a kid at age five make sense of his brother dying in front of him? Right. Well, he doesn't. But how does, say, a person approaching their 50s, as I am now, make sense of that? Well, they're going to need a pretty big story mm. uh, to put things in together. You can think about it in therapeutic terms as a coping mechanism. Sure. Um, and I would say it's at least that, but maybe something more. Um, you know, and so then you take that, and I think what a metaphysics is doing then is trying to help you negotiate things. What's interesting about therapy is how do you again? It goes back to that that big uh, conundrum um, that I mentioned earlier about the contemporary life. Is how do you acknowledge that people come in with their stories that you need to affirm as a clinician, while also calling them uh, to think that story and sometimes rethink it? I think that's a big question. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a great question. I, I don't think I have a good answer for it. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, I don't know if anyone does. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. I, and I think the difficulty is. Is the the difficulty felt at the clinic clinical level is not different than the difference difficulty felt at the political level, right? So mm. when a clinician finds herself in a position that the best thing she can do is manage um, her clients, her patients, uh, particular um, narratives, um, while also trying to identify. And encourage that person towards maybe a more healthy narrative, uh, but not knowing quite where the the leverage comes from without it being impositional. It's a similar story at this point in our in our politics, or say in our democracy. Yeah. Um, how do we acknowledge the goodness of individual stories and the stories of particular communities, while also saying we're also in this together? That it can't simply be individuals or individual communities that governments, say, manage, right. uh, especially when they come into conflict with one another. It has to be at least some common cause, mm. some common story, some common mission, and the mechanisms by which we negotiate those differences. At its best, that's what democracy is. But what we're realizing in this moment, and maybe what we've always realized in the entire experiment of American democracy is that is very, very, very difficult. Oh, yeah. Uh, because the constituent individual and collective communal identities are so deeply into in conflict with one another, not just between communities, but within selves, that then having a world where we operate and work together versus war with one another, again, collectively or individually, becomes a really difficult thing. And and maybe it is the fate of therapy to inherit that world mm. and not quite know how to navigate it. Uh, and that just then becomes a small picture of the challenges of democracy itself. Wow. Okay, can I ask you one last kind of big question that maybe brings sure. some of all these things together? So, sure. you know, at, at one level, the 
the kind of theme of the podcast is exploring the issues that, you know, the modern man tends to stay silent about. Um, it's not just a podcast for men, but but that is the the sort of intended audience in some ways. As you think about your own experience on this planet, uh, being a guy, as you think about all the ideas, all the philosophical texts that have been important to you, as you think about your you know, identity as a Christian and that theological story. What do you think about when you think about the concept of the modern man? What, in, in what ways is being a male kind of problematic these days? Is there any hope? Like, I guess what comes to mind? I know it's sort of a big picture question, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, this is a great question again. And, you know, as you know better than I, an enormously complicated and complex yes. one. And at this moment, an incredibly fraught set of questions. So, um, you know, so let's go back to our enlightenment moment where, um, you know, white, rich, educated dudes uh, discovered that the best thing in the world was them. <laughs> um, and then that came with um, or came out of actual concrete realities mm. of oppression uh, in this case, patriarchy and misogyny, um, and then built into incredibly brutal practices, um, violent practices against women, both mm. in the household uh, and, say, across the earth. Um, if what the Masters of Suspicion did for us, you know, and remember there are equally um, – female voices to the masters of suspicion. I just named the male masters of suspicion. Well, then there quickly became female masters of suspicion who showed that the masters of suspicion themselves were trafficking in their own forms of Mm. mastery. So, um, so this story then put under suspicion and greatly under in doubt in the 20th century, what it, what maleness amounts to. So we could all agree that, you know, these assholes in the background, um, you know, you think about someone like Immanuel Kant, who is considered uh, one of the, you know, quote, fathers of the Enlightenment. Right. Uh, And, you know, one of the things that Kant said was what it meant to be a human was to reason. uh, But reason is only something divorceable from bodies. Mm. Um, And what he meant by that was, you know, dark bodies Mm. and female bodies that these are the problem with those kinds of bodies is they literally couldn't get out of their own body. They were just stuck in the mud, um, you know, of their sub European geographies or stuck in the bodies of having breasts and the considerations of children or what have you. And so, therefore, as a function of their bodies, they couldn't really be enlightened individuals. Mm. Um, and, and, of course, that was just ideological cover for practical, concrete realities of oppression and domination uh, from the household and, and, you know, and far beyond. Sure. Okay, so if that's the background, then once we realize that and we begin to deconstruct it, what, le- what is left of maleness? Well, one answer could be that there's nothing left of maleness, that maleness, right, is just gender and gender is simply constructed for the sake of power, that there isn't really anything there, there, beyond (laughs) the social construction of power. And so the answer 
of what does it mean to be a man is simply power, and we should get rid of that. Mm. Uh, and so this is the deconstructive deconstruction of gender, and at base, maybe that's all we have left is sex, mm. um, say XY versus other form chromosomal realities. Well, you can imagine where this goes is in the same way you can deconstruct gender, you could also deconstruct sex and the meaning of sex. And, you know, the great master of suspicion here in the 20th century is Judith Butler, right. her seminal text, um, Gender Trouble, and, you know, so on and so forth, her entire corpus. You know, Butler is one of my favorite theorists uh, and one of the people who really takes up the Foucauldian mantle. Mm. Um and so you can certainly do that. And I think in some ways, the questions about that binaryism, pronoun, uh, and the power of pronouns um, and language as such as, as deeply gendered in, pro- in problematic ways is all downstream from the suspicions uh, and their realization. Um, and this is where I'm not quite sure what to do with it. So I think, for example, that race, this is just borrowing from a certain feminist philosopher, um, I think that race underneath race, for example, right? That's sure. all you have is racism. There isn't anything called races out there. Right. Um, uh, there are simply they are simply forms of power. Um, and so what? So race was created for racism, not the other way around. You don't mm. first have races, and then people are racist towards each other. Rather, uh, this is what the black radical tradition taught us. Rather, you have racism that creates racial categories to justify the racism, right? And namely the racisms for political economic domination and exploitation like chattel slavery and all the forms we have in the current world. And then races are created to justify that. I'm not so sure what the dynamic is in relationship to gender and sex. I'm not quite ready to say underneath gender, there's nothing. Um, Underneath sex, there's nothing. I want to say that sex does matter at some significant level. The the great feminist, Luce Aragari, Said, said it this way, if we don't have some working concrete concept of sexual difference, say males and females, at a basic biological level, then the very ground of difference is undercut because the ground difference is often procreation, right? Mm. And so um, and so I'm somewhere along the lines of between a butler who says that there is no nothing to the difference at all and an Aragari who wants to recoup some notion of a difference. Um, so, you know, going back to, you know, getting out of the weeds of the abstract concepts, going back to your question, then sure. what does it mean to be a man? Um, or can we even talk in those terms anymore? Right. I think what we're trying to do is recover a sense of personhood. Uh, in a way that um, communities like yours are trying to do that identify something about maleness or manness while being incredibly cautious about the problems that come out of it or have that that have come out of it. Um, and I think one of the best ways we can do this is largely going back to your D&D image mm. is we bring men together and help us be deeply aware of the troubles that we've caused and are still a part of. Um, while also trying to cultivate a sense of self um, that is more than deconstruction, that is mm. more than deconstructed selves. Because I don't know if deconstructed selves actually can are sustainable in the world. Um, and so, you know, with men, then the question is, what it mean to be a man given our tendencies built into the privileged structures of our society that make us pretty awful creatures a lot of the time? But that's not all. Um, 
And I think that's, you know, again, it goes in, in some sense, it's just a species of the larger theme of post deconstruction. How do we imagine sure. selves and how do we imagine gendered or sexual selves? Sure. Uh, how do we, then we imagine roles that are often directly related to questions of gender or sex, like fathers, husbands, partners, brothers, you know, and these kinds of things. Yeah. I think this is a big question. I think one of the things that we forget about Donald Trump was that he was an incredible manipulator of the ambig- ambiguities. And mm. in turn, you know, he he was able to manipulate and take advantage of us in the context of our ambiguities around these questions and just weaponize the hell out of them. Um, oh, well and that's why, you know, that's why, uh, you know, I think the, the 2016 election was about issues of class, um, deployable to questions of race. Um, but if it was more explicitly, and we forget this, how much it was a question of masculinity, gender, and sex, mm. um, that the one thing the right could agree on was they could not stand or stomach the idea of a woman being president. Mm. Um, and we, it's, it's amazing how quickly we forget that. Yeah. Um, and the violence that Trump himself embodied in his own person and his history and his violence against women, you know, it's, that is both the deep story of Donald Trump, but what we seem to forget, you know, nowadays we associate Trump with his awful political shenanigans right. or COVID or whatever, what have you, but he was made possible. The 45th president was made possible because of just an outrageous an outrage and outrageously explicit form of hatred towards women wow. uh, and violence against women. And we forget that. Um, but those, those are the kinds of memories that men will want to cultivate as they build out new concepts for what it means to be a man. Yeah, that's so good. Okay, Jonathan, I lied to you because I, I do have one more question. Do you have the time? Yeah, totally. Okay. I know it's going to be a bit controversial and Speak on it however you'd like, you know, maybe from an academic perspective. But I saw on Twitter that you're going to be teaching a class at Chicago Divinity on, you know, Roe v. Wade and the and the recent sort of overturning of that. Do you have any theological or metaphysical or just kind of philosophical reflections on all of that stuff? Like, what's your angle on it? What's what's the interesting question that all of that sort of brings up? Yeah, another great question. Um, Well, you know, someone said, you know, they saw the tweet and they said to me offline, they said, boy, what a time to take on abortion. And I thought, well, is there any time better than the present? Right. So when Chicago approached me about this visiting professorship, you know, they asked, you know, what would you like to teach? They certainly wanted me to teach the class on racial capitalism. That was the initial connection. Okay, I had just written a book that's gotten some press on issues of race. Uh, and so that was, and, but they asked, what else would you like? And I threw out several options and they chose that one. So I, I partly, I partly blamed them, but okay. I was certainly the one that proposed it. You know, it was at this moment, we're in the spring and the, the Supreme Court leak on the eventual decision had come out. And so I, you know, we all read the writing on the wall and we knew that Roe v. Wade was likely to be overturned. And so I thought, well, what a, what a time to think through it, because I think what, one of the best things about academic life is it gives us an opportunity to think our way out of the present. Mm. Um, so, and I, I don't mean that in terms of a particular judgment about the morality or immorality of, 
of abortion. I mean that in terms of the deeply conflicted nature of our politics around abortion. Right. Abortion itself is emblematic of the the disintegration um, of democracy, as I earlier described it. So, mm. uh, and then certainly as a question at the cent- centrality of at the heart of the church, right? So of Christianity. So. Um, so what I wanted, what I want to do in the class isn't so much push a certain view on the morality or immorality of abortion. What I want to study together with the students that are in the class is what happened. Uh, and so I want to almost begin by imagining Roe, um, the, the 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 Supreme Court decision Roe, mm. as a a body we stumble upon. We find a dead person. And we need to decide, we need to determine what happened. Was this a murder? Um, was this a suicide? Was this a natural death internal to the built-in logic of uh, black men's um, majority opinion from 72, 73? What happened? Um, and so it, part of this is then studying, you know, how on the right since 19, the 1970s, um, abortion came to be thought of. I mean, there's some really interesting history here, right? So abortion right. is first mostly thought of in terms of the personal status, the status of the person of the fetus. Um, within Catholic circles, that's largely how the anti-abortion um, movement was developed. But eventually it becomes really about the status of women, mm. Um and so what happens? So I want to study the logic. I want to study some of the deeper and I will say darker history of the right on this um, uh, about how they imagined uh, abortion and say the emergence of reproductive rights and the ascending status of women as a fundamental threat to an imagined uh, say pre-Roe way of life. Mm. Uh, and this gets back to some of the white nationalism. But I also want to imagine alternative forms of thinking both on the right and the left around abortion. And so we have this body here. What do we do with it? Um, you know, what what do we what does it mean to go forward simultaneously committed to reproductive rights and the status of women in our society, which to me is a, a non-negotiable reality? Mm. Um while also taking seriously the really difficult questions about what abortion is, right? Um the ending of something and what that something is is something we you know is is one of the question begged questions. Yeah, well said. Uh, in this analysis, so I so really it's less the issue of how do we push the pro life or pro life pro choice agenda, and it's more to get behind the agendas um, and right. to think what happened, how did it happen, how did we get here, and and what's next? Um, how do we think about these things? So I'm really looking forward to this class. Um, you know, and, and so for the people who say, wow, do you really want to take on such a controversial topic? Well, I mean, I just wrote a book trying to rethink racism, so I guess <laughs> I'm not particularly allergic to controversy. Man, you seem like uh, a glutton for punishment or something. I don't know. <laughs> or, or, you know, a glutton for wanting places where we can think our way out of the present on the way to, you know, more hopeful futures. I like it. Uh, this, is, this is a difficult and in some ways pretty dark moment in our life. You know, what are the available lights that remain? That's one of the things I want to ask with the students in the class. You know what? If, if I can kind of sort of end with this idea, I, I'm going to kind of use that phrase that you've said a couple times in thinking about my own therapeutic work. I'm trying to help men find ways out of a problematic present into a more hopeful future. That's 
that's really kind of what I feel called to do in my work with guys. So that's just really cool that you framed it that way. Yeah. And the, and the question you asked early on is in a sense, some sense, the, that's the biography of a kid who saw his brother die earlier. Yeah. How do we, how do we find hope and light and put one foot in front of the other? Absolutely. Okay. Well, if anyone's interested in finding out more about you, they want to check out your books. Is there somewhere they can connect with you online? Yeah, I think uh, just, you know, my Baylor webpage, but I also have my own webpage. It's jonathanchan.blog. Um, okay, so, I, can, I can add that in the show notes. Yeah, so, you know, and that's where I, a lot of the podcasts are collected over the last year and articles and writings and stuff like that. And, and you know, the, the book Asian Americans and the Spirit of Racial Capitalism is the book I released in the last year. And that's that's the one that's kind of um, gotten a fair amount of press. So. Okay, okay, awesome. Hey, so w- w- would you end with just the line that I asked the guest to end with? Just by saying, continue the conversation. Yeah, continue the conversation. Awesome. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you again for listening to this episode. I really hope that you enjoyed it. Let's try to connect. Reach out to me. You can go to my website at com, or you can Google my name, Kike Autry on Google, and there you'll find my Facebook and Instagram accounts. If you would like to schedule an appointment, you can go to my website or you can go to the website of the practice that I serve at, Katie Teen and familycounseling.com. I can't wait to hear from you. Please share my content and remember, continue the conversation.